0: Blockades in support of Wetsuit and opposition to the Coastal GasLink pipeline have ground rail traffic to a halt in parts of Canada. But at the centre of it all is a camp of about 50 people in the remote BC wilderness. I'm Dave Breckenridge and this is 10-3. Today we talk with APTN senior reporter Kathleen Martins about the conflict over the pipeline and why there's not a simple answer. Don't forget, you can subscribe to us on all your favorite listening platforms, uh, whether that's Apple Podcasts, Stitcher or Spotify. We'd love it if you could leave us a rating, a review and definitely tell your friends about us. So, Kathleen, before we get into some of the kind of more detailed issues around the blockade against Coastal GasLink, you've been covering the story for a while. I guess first, how long has this blockade uh, in remote B.C. been going on?
1: I wouldn't use the word blockade in 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 BC. Like the the blockade is more on uh, affecting the railway and intersections and places like that. In BC, it's there's an RCMP exclusion zone set up or was I think it's uh, sort of taken down now. And they because they were they are enforcing uh, an interim injunction from the BC Mm -hmm. Supreme Court uh, that gives the company, you know, access to this forest road to where it's working on clearing land for a right of way for the pipeline. And 190 kilometers of this pipeline is going to run through Wet'suwet'en territory. Now, so blockade is maybe a bit too strong a word. They've got these two camps that they don't even like to call protest camps. But you and I, we would call them that. They're camps right on the road, right beside the road, in the way of a pipeline, and uh, the company says interfering with its employees' ability to do their jobs. Just uh, to help to answer your question, Mm. that uh, decision from the judge came down on the very last Right before Christmas. So uh, already these camps existed. They've been, the the Unistaten camp, for example, that's been there for 10 years. And the Gedimpton camp, it only went up, started going up in January, a year ago, since the RCMP exclusion zone. They've put up other sort of, they call them supply tents and stuff like that along that road. But um, blockade, I'm not sure that that would be the right word.
0: At these camps, who are the people? who have, who have set up camp and what are the reasoning behind the protest against coastal gas link?
1: Yeah, that, yeah, that, that pretty much gets to the nut of the story, which is, you know, who are these folks and why are they there? So they're part of the Wet'suwet'en nation, one of the uh, number of indigenous uh, communities in Northern BC, there are six first nations in their nation. So that means six elected band councils, are in the Wet'suwet'en Nation. Five of those band councils have signed agreements with Coastal GasLink, saying, uh, "Yeah, we agree to having you run your pipeline." through our lands in exchange for money, job, uh, skills training, and other things that they've uh, negotiated. And the people that are opposed are, are mostly represented by the hereditary chiefs. So there's two forms of governance. Uh, there, there, were, there were always hereditary chiefs chiefs, uh, but they were wiped out when the Indian Act came into effect. Canada wanted a more recognizable form of government, just like they have for municipal and provincial and federal, where you've got elected politicians, so you've got your elected Mm -hmm. chief and council. So the hereditary are not elected. They say, we have been uh, caretakers of the land for thousands of years, pre-contact, and they oppose a pipeline on their territory.
0: And what is the reasoning behind their opposition to the pipeline on their territory?
1: They're not opposed to fossil fuels. I want to get that clear. But they, they don't want any kind of an accident happening. It is pristine, mm-hmm. ecologically sound, like there, there's no pollution. It's it's stunningly beautiful to the eye. Uh, it's it's a natural beauty. They don't want it running. They, they have a huge territory, a, a huge swath of land, and they say only two parcels of it remain untouched by development. They're open to logging. They've got logging going on there, and they have other industries, but they don't want fossil fuel development. On their land, and they uh, have said no to previous pipelines. Mm-hmm. This isn't the first; it won't be the last. And uh, they they have stead, they have stood fast. They they say there's no amount of negotiating, no amount of perks, no nothing that will get them to change their minds.
0: Earlier, you mentioned a five of the six bound councils signing agreements of support for, uh, coastal gas link. Um, what is the rationale for them and kind of how do we get into the conflict between the hereditary chiefs and chief and council?
1: They 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 signed what they call pipeline benefit agreements. This is a common thing in the industry. Sometimes government proffers them. Sometimes the company proffers them. Uh, th- this has been over many years. I've been quoted a figure of six years of consultation between the company and the province and uh, the First Nations. There's twenty First Nations along the route of the pipeline. Six of them are in Wet'suwet'en territory. So they feel. Uh, they can't, always, they can't say no. They want opportunities. It's not every day that someone comes and says, hey, would you like you know, several million dollars? If we do this, we will give you that money. We'll give your people some training, maybe some access to jobs. Uh, they feel they can't afford to say no. But they try to broker uh, the best deal they can for their people. And they have to sign in conjunction with these pipeline benefit agreements Non-disclosure agreements. So only one or two of these have ever been leaked out. You know, they're not pretty. They, they show some pretty tough negotiating on the part of the company. And, and basically, they're told, you know, these councils are told, listen, we're going to build this thing anyway. You might as well get uh, some benefit. Uh, it, it's kind of hard to feel that you're going in and being consulted or, you know, your opinion counts when that's, that's kind of the tack that's taken. So I know one that took six years to negotiate and uh, a lot of back and forth. So it's not an easy thing. And, and sometimes they don't want it to be construed as approval. It's more like, you know, we got to kind of go along to get along and get something out of it. Uh, it doesn't mean we're carte blanche, green light, do whatever you want. We 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 have to get in there and we're going up against really experienced, um, you know, these companies know what they're doing. They drive a hard bargain. They also make these agreements with municipalities not just First Nations, and uh, they know what they're doing. So as I say, these are mostly secret, and uh, that's why we're not hearing so much from uh, the First Nations that have signed these agreements, because their hands are tied. They're silent, but they feel they, they don't want their silence to be misconstrued as approval. And so this is where this conflict comes in, because the company and the province say you have to go to the rights holders along the route. They recognize the elected band councils as rights holders. But the um, Supreme Court of Canada has recognized the hereditary um, chiefs and that system of government as the caretakers for the land, that was in this. Uh, you've heard a lot about it lately. I'm sure this delgamuk decision from 1997. So the, the Supreme Court confirmed this hereditary system. It confirmed the titles of these chiefs and who had, who was among them. You know, able to speak on behalf of the, of the uh, people of the territory. But what hasn't followed up is how that's going to work in real life.
0: In terms of the hereditary chiefs, is there unanimity there? In opposition to the pipeline,
1: there isn't unanimity. There are 13 of the senior hereditary chiefs, and six for sure oppose the pipeline, potentially two more, for a total of eight hereditary chiefs of this 13 oppose the pipeline. There were three female chiefs. I know this is going to be a bit confusing, but um, there were three when I first visited the camp, November 2018. They told us at that time, these three female chiefs had each take accepted $30,000 from CGL, and thus gave their approval. And they were stripped of their titles by the rest of the chiefs. And those titles were given to, I, I think, just coincidentally, they were, they were males, they're not females anymore. Uh, but uh, that was how that was treated. So, you know, uh, pretty pretty tough uh, love there.
0: Now, how does the governance structure of hereditary chiefs work compared to reserve government under the Indian Act?
1: Well, you know, it's very similar. When I first went into the office of the Wet'suwet'en, and this is the hereditary chief's office in Smithers, it looks just like a band council office. And they've got their sign out front and you walk in and you're greeted at reception, just like you'd be in any band council. So it was a little bit of a parallel universe. They they have a website. They've got their uh, daily agenda on there. It says chiefs are in meetings, just like you'd find in any other band council. So... Uh, they operate very similarly in that they um, there's a lot of uh, meetings. They're, they they have they have portfolios. I know they receive some of their funding from the BC Treaty Commission, for example. They also uh, have like employees. I met a couple of guys and they're like fish and game wardens, and they look after uh, you know, the wildlife and and uh, things like that. They In the summer, they're out in boats in the winter they're out on their uh, quads. Uh, and they work for the office of the
0: Wet'suwet'en. So my understanding of, of, of the dispute here is, in part, who has authority to say yay or nay to what happens on this land? What does the law say?
1: The answer would, from these parties would be whose law? The Wet'suwet'en say, this this has been our system of governance, our laws... Since pre-contact and now that uh, since colonialism, we've had to go into court and confirm that we were here first, that we have jurisdiction over our land, and we we need to, uh, we should be consulted. And others would say, well, you know, as we hear politicians say, Canada is a country uh, with a rule of law. Well, whose law do they mean? Do they mean Canadian law? Then, then that would be uh, this court. Uh, injunction in BC that said the company has a right to access this property so it can get on on with its construction. You know, the, the, it isn't just one law when you're looking at it from an indigenous point of
0: view. And one thing I was curious about, and I meant to ask earlier, is this land covered under treaty? Is Wet'suwet'en land covered under any treaty with the crown or is it considered unceded land?
1: Right. Yes, it is unceded. Now, you know, we have treaty on the prairies. Uh, I, Alberta has treaties, but BC doesn't have treaties. And so, the BC government, for example, says this land that it ha- it is leasing to Coastal Gas for the pipeline is crown land. But the Wet'suwet'en say, no, this is our land. Unceded means we haven't given up our rights and title to it. And so this is the heart of the conflict. This is why the company, really, only all all it can do is go to court and say, look, we've got signed agreements, uh, regulatory, other First Nations. Everybody says, let's carry on. Uh, people want jobs. Let's do our work. And the judge says, yeah, you're right. What I'm looking at here is... Um, you've dotted all the I's and crossed all the T's. Here you go. Here's your injunction. And the company's not going to go in and enforce it. That's something mm-hmm. the police do. They have a responsibility to go in and, and uh, enforce the injunction. So this year, Uh, of course, politicians, provincial and federal are trying to avoid what happened last year when the Mounties went in, you know, and uh, in military gear and style gear and cleared the people out of there and arrested them. Now, they've been going in, they've been doing arrests, but then they've been releasing them. And um, they're not really even being charged and people are going back and they're being arrested again. So it's a, it's a bit of a, you know, it's a different approach this year as they're trying to figure out another way to resolve this rather than by force.
0: How many people are in the camps?
1: When I was up there a year ago, my guess is there was about 50 people. Now, these are not all Wet'suwet'en people. They have um, put a call out for help and they are part of this sort of environmental movement that, if you will, moves up and down the west coast of North America, California, Oregon, Washington, BC. Uh, last year, I met a young woman who just got off the uh, Rainbow Warrior, and she was coming up to the unistatin camp Cap to handle media inquiries. They've got a lot of Young non-indigenous people helping them out, ha- handling the um, the social media feeds, the Facebook pages, the videos. They're putting out their own messages because they they don't rely on media to do it. For they want to do it themselves and get their own uh, words out there. And so, I it's a very small group of about 500 people of the Wet'suwet'en Nation. There are maybe 50 uh, that are, uh, part of this group that are opposed to the pipeline.
0: Now you mentioned earlier that the, the Wet'suwet'en aren't opposed to resource development. They, as you mentioned, they have logging on, on their land. They just don't want this pipeline going through their land. What is the relationship like, you know, between the Wet'suwet'en and, and their opposition on, uh, the grounds that they don't want it on their land and those who are protesting for purely environmental reasons. Do they find, you know, common ground in, at least in in part or their disagreements? Do they, they seem to be on the same page?
1: You know, that's a very perceptive question because t- they tried 10 years ago. They tried this and they were in the groups, the environmental groups said, listen, nobody gives a you know what about indigenous rights especially land rights like yon and they because they the Wet'suwet'en came down to Vancouver this was 10 years ago with the Vancouver Olympics and i think you remember the uh, the olympics on stolen land campaign that was going on at that time and the Wet'suwet'en came down and said, listen, there are there, we've got issues in our own territory, and uh some of our sister and brother uh, indigenous nations have uh Olympic development going on in their uh on their territory and they don't want it. And they just could not get anybody to really buy in or join what they were doing. It was like Canada society, you know. We we went through the TRC Commission, we went through the MMIWG inquiry. It's like Canada has finally come to a point where it's seeing what reconciliation could mean and, and what it means to be honest and forthright, transparent about it and actually do what it says it's going to do rather than just make promises and break them and then have people, uh, just continually, um, you know, have these protests and yet they don't seem to get resolved to anybody's satisfaction.
0: Is there a resolution here that that could be acceptable to either the supporters of the pipeline and the uh, opposition to the pipeline? It it seems to be pretty intractable. We have one group who says I we don't want it here um and another group that says well the the law says and the and the courts have ruled and and all of that. Like where do where do we get a resolution here?
1: Yeah, I I don't know. I I wish I did um you know they need they want I know the Wet'suwet'en have said their answer is no. It won't change. They they say they have given an alternate route to the company. The companies turned it down. It was too close to uh, major communities. I mean, uh, you know, in commonsensically, you would go where there aren't that many people, right, uh, for any kind of a big development project. You know, they also want a certain level of government to talk to them. They don't want to deal with, uh, you know, for lack of a better word, underlings, like an Indigenous Services Minister. They want to talk to the Prime Minister. They want to talk to the premier they feel they are a nation at, at the same level of as those individuals and that's who they want to sit with at the table they, there may be a resolution i don't know you know undrip the uh, united nations declaration on the rights of indigenous peoples addresses this it talks about having these these uh, another track of of governance indigenous governments i know new zealand's got it i think australia's working on it uh, places with indigenous peoples who have a strong opposition to a lot of these projects for for land rights basically land rights reasons uh they could they could be consulted by the companies it could work as a as a track alongside Canada and the provinces and so when you have this project it would you wouldn't be going to the first nation, which looks after you know, the school budget and the social assistance payments and the administration and housing, you would go to the hereditary chiefs who look after the land and they would come to the table and they would broker with the company. So, you know, that's a possibility. Other countries have done it and are looking at doing it. And that might be where Canada is going.
0: Well, it it certainly is forcing the conversation uh, as to what to do about indigenous land and indigenous title and definitely a complicated issue that we'll be paying attention to over the next little while kathleen thanks for your insight and your time oh it's my pleasure Ten Three 3 is produced by carson jarama theme music by bryce hall thanks to my guest kathleen martins from aptn i'm dave breakingridge thanks for listening